the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Many of us still in lockdown, but hopefully things are about to open up a little bit. We are waiting to see what happens. If you are new to the bus, you've jumped on during this lockdown period. What's the show all about? Well, it's simply we find interesting people. They've got a point of view. They've got an opinion. They're doing something in their world that has their mojo working. We think it's pretty good. We get them on. We find out what they've done, how they did it, and then how we can apply it to our own world. Or maybe a friend. There's a lot of friends who are right now suffering and feeling a bit flat or a bit off during the pandemic. So this is a way to take tips and tools to help yourself and a friend that's what our show's all about. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Uh, before we kick off, just whip around the studio. AP, <laughs> you've been quiet. How are you handling this isolation, mate? Isolation? I haven't left the booth in 12 years. He's been eating all the ice cream that he made from last week's show. He went on to Jenny's Instagram page and has been downloading, re- downloading recipes all week. <laughs> There's no point. That was a great. The end of the show is funny. I'll have rum and raisin. Hold, hold the raisin. Hold the ice cream. Hold the cream. You can't oh, get that dear. at Dan Murphy's. Uh, Absolutely Lola, not. give us a song that tells us how you're feeling. So we're almost at the back end of Lock Up Robbo. How are things going in your little world? Things are going in my little world really well, actually. So far, uh, I have completed a chopping board for the kitchen. Uh, a, I'm just this afternoon, just finished off a, uh, a tray, a puzzle tray with drawers underneath to put the puzzle pieces in for Sophie and Tanae to do their jigsaw puzzles on. And um, Sam wants a new seat to sit at his little table with him and do his craft. So that starts tomorrow. It's funny how many people are back on the tools. It's very, very interesting how suddenly people have got time to get back on the tools. Actually, we'll, we'll talk about that next week on the show. I've got something for you. But uh, let's get started. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. I actually have an amazing fact this week. You remember a couple of years ago, we were invited to uh, uh, do a gig in um, Boring, Tennessee. Do you remember that? And we decided <laughs> Boring, Tennessee. we couldn't find it on a map, so we decided we shouldn't really go. 
During this week, we got a pretty amazing email. We are now actually real-life DJs. You and I will be hanging out on air. Do you want to know where? (laughs) Only London, England. (laughs) What are you talking about? Well, the Mojo Radio Show has just been accepted as one of the, in inverted commas, artists on podcast radio in London. It's a digital radio station that plays podcasts, and we are now one of those said podcasts. So we're we're real radio DJs. Hello, London. That is very interesting. And I think both of our listeners, your mum and my mum, are going to be absolutely stoked stoked about that. (laughs) Stoked. Maybe we should, maybe when the pandemic's over, we should stick them on a plane to London and they can fill out the survey diaries if they get one. (laughs) Actually, I've got to to send a note to Dirk Anthony who tried to get us a gig at Boring Tennessee to go, look look where we are now. Look where we've come from. We've made it. We're in London. Cool. if we've got some listeners who actually are podcast aficionados, just just quickly, just to fill you in, this is really interesting and I'm hoping it will become a thing around the world. Um, the, the chairman uh, of Podcast Radio says, for listeners, Podcast Radio will enable them to discover and sample products to find out what they're like. For podcast producers, it's a showcase and a shop window for their content. So in other words, those who put in the extra effort not that we put in too much effort, but somehow we snuck through. For those who put in the extra effort, you've now got a showcase for your, your podcast to become more than something online. I, I think it's awesome. Well, a couple of th- there's it's brilliant. And what's interesting with the podcast world, and I think the power of the podcast world, is we're in our seventh season. We went to Patreon maybe two, or not wouldn't be two years ago. We have Patreon supporters all over the world, which is super cool, which helps us cover our costs because it's been expensive for the first five or six seasons. And one of those guys is Spalsy. You know Spalsy? Spalsy, yeah. Spalsy from the Gold Coast. Asbestos man. And Spalsy has been nominated and is a finalist in the Outstanding Leadership Awards, which is a national competition for leadership in business. And as part of what I've been doing during the lockdown, because I've had time on my hands, I've been doing one-hour phone calls with our podcast listeners who are Patreon supporters, caught up with Spalsy, and he broke the news. So I think it's it's pretty cool. I mean, and the nice thing about a podcast, it's certainly not a, a money generator or something you could live on. Well, I guess some people like, no, <laughs> Rogan and Ferris can, but we're, we're not. But, the, but where we get our, our mojo from, is people like Spalsy who has cracked that and he is just a good old Queenslander listening to our little radio program. And he said to me, he said, GB, I, I credit a lot of what I'm doing to the stuff that he's picking up from our amazing guests. So anyway, it's all good news. Hello, London. I'm Spalsy. The Mojo Radio Show. Uh, before we start the show, one quick thing to ponder. I get a, an email from a guy who donated some hand sanitizer and he said it's at this shop you can go in take it in a container and fill up the hand sanitizer so i get down there and you gotta take your own container so i pop it in the container i bring it home with me i try some <laughs> the email he said was don't use near an open flame <laughs> <laughs> oh, no and this stuff can't. is absolute rocket fuel like i tell you it is it is hillbilly moonshine <laughs> My question is, we're putting that on our skin. Uh. We had a guest on the show a couple of seasons back who was from a company called Mother Dirt, Yasmina Agnivik, wonderful girl who had a product called Mother Dirt, which was 
a product for us to clean ourselves that doesn't destroy the microbiome on our skin. So when you have a problem, I'm really curious. The reason that I, I got this stuff, and it is absolute rocket fuel, and you would start a fire with it. <laughs> then I saw a notice from Truman's, and Truman's are a company who deliver non-toxic solutions to clean clothes, dishes, and surfaces. And they're now delivering to the doorstep in America. But my question is, all these hand sanitizers that are killing disease bacteria and could be used in a flamethrower, <laughs> we're putting that on our hands, which goes into our systems. I wonder what the long-term effects are going to be. I don't know, but I suppose it's a bit like antibiotics when you've got a, a, you know, an infection or something. It, it kills the bad and the good unfortunately. And I suppose we're in a similar situation, but yeah, you're right. I mean, wonder what the long-term consequences will be from continually killing that good bacteria. I'm sure the good bacteria transfers the same way as the bad. So are we starving our gut of good bacteria through that? I don't know. Interesting though, isn't it? No, we're just killing. We're killing, we're killing the good bacteria in our system. We're putting, because we're walking into any shop, any airport, any place, get back in our cars, we hit it with the sanitizer, which is fine. Just, you got to do I just think it's time to pause and go, what have we done to our systems? And if it is the gut, then it's going back to what is good for gut health. Because if you have a round of antibiotics, it's incumbent upon all of us then to get out of the kombucha or the kefir or the yogurts or the probiotics or prebiotics to, to satisfy and feed, number one, grow the good bacteria, and then number two, feed them in our gut. And... Uh, now, I don't know whether hands and everything else is that big a deal for it. Don't know enough about it, but it just had me curious. But uh, go Truman. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Our guest this week wrote to me. He said, I listened to the show. I like the show. Can I come and say g'day? And I went, for show. Don Mann is a 20-year Highly decorated Navy SEAL. He's a, this guy is a very, very accomplished athlete, long distance triathlete, pretty impressive what he's done. And he's a best-selling author. And his book, Reaching Beyond Boundaries, is what we're going to talk about today. But his other book, which is his autobiography, Inside SEAL Team 6, My Life and Missions with America's Elite Warriors, is a national bestseller, a Washington Post bestseller. And he trained a lot of the guys who are in SEAL Team 6 who took out pop quiz. Uh, I'm Bin Laden. Osama Bin Laden, correct. Well done. So what I want to talk to Don about is the lessons that he's taken from his training with the SEALs and SEAL Team 6 and how we take that stuff, apply it to our own daily life to push beyond all these boundaries that we have inside our own minds to achieve the goals we set for ourselves. And he talks about micro and macro goals. He's specifically big on removing excuses and we're surrounded by them, creating the right mindset, and learning from not only our successes, but also our failures. So, uh, Don, we're stoked to have you here. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. Do you know, reading your book and looking at some of your stuff, Don, your SEAL teammates, they used to call you Warrant Officer Manslaughter or Sweet Satan, Don Maniac and Dr. Death. Why, why did you pick up those handles? Well, the Dr. Death was more of a serious nickname, and um, it's nothing compared to today's, you know, the guys in these teams nowadays or the military in general. But when I was in, I was a medic, a corpsman, 
And I always happened to be around things that went bad, you know, stabbings, shootings, decapitations, things like that. So I got the nickname Dr. Death because I was always around some terrible things. Now it's almost everybody's around things all the time. But the other ones were just kind of a play on words pretty much just to um, – because I, I was the uh, training officer and I trained the guys in harsh, harsh ways. And especially with the physical training, that's where the, the other nicknames came from. For more than 22 years, it's said that you trained and worked out every day. And you said it was a big part of how you defined yourself. And I'm really curious about this, Don. During that time, how did you define yourself? Because identity is something we hear spoken a lot about today. And I'm just curious about how you saw your identity back there and and how that's changed over the years. Well, you know, Gary, if I put up my finger on a, an exact time frame in my life, when that began to change or create an identity for me, it, it went back to seventh grade. And my parents asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I had two passions. One was music and one was exercise. And whatever I was going to ask for Christmas, I I was going to go with one or the other, and that's the trail I was going to go down for the rest of my life. I knew back then for some reason. And I chose sports, and I asked for weight weight equipment for my uh, Christmas gift. And ever since then, I just pursued a life evolved around fitness and sports. And um, I'm, I'm fortunate I chose that direction because I was a terrible musician. So now I can enjoy music and still carry on with sports all these years later. When, when you think of your identity during that period, because when we spoke to James Clear, who wrote the super successful book, Atomic Habits, he said, in order to create a habit, the first step is to work out an identity that goes with that. And the identity is, I'm the sort of guy who would. 22 years, every single day, how did you see, what was keeping you going? What was your identity you had in the back of your mind that wouldn't allow you to take a day off? Okay, and actually I would say the identity was probably closer to 50 years, but the 22-year period was I happened to meet the greatest triathlete of all time at that time. His name was Dave Scott. And I asked Dave before he won his first Ironman, I said, Dave, how do you stay in such great shape? He said, well, the doctors are against it, but I just work out every day of the year. So I did it for that one year and then for the next year and then the next year. And it just became part of me as far. I, and I was always, always doing things that my friends and coworkers, they didn't do. They thought it was extreme. I just liked the 500, the 600 mile nonstop unit, human endurance events and climbing mountains, even in SEAL training on weekends. I like to race in triathlons and marathons. I always really enjoyed pushing myself. And if I didn't push myself every day, I felt like the day was a waste. When you talk about parts of me, Don, I'm curious, a big part of your backstory is being a Navy SEAL, being in the teams. What, What part of your SEAL identity is still a part of you today? And what parts did you leave back in the teams? It's so funny you ask me that because I still refer to myself as a SEAL and I retired over 20 years ago now. I don't think I left anything behind. Um, We have a saying, once you earn 
Navy SEAL trident, that big, big pin you get on your uniform once you become a SEAL, the largest medal in the U.S. military, um, you, you try to earn that every, each and every day. You don't just get it one day and say, oh, good, I did that. I did, you know, you earn that trident each and every day. So I, I don't think I left anything behind. And in my own opinion, I haven't anyways. If we get right back before that period, you said at what point you're on a one-way path of becoming a criminal or drug addict. And then you realize that if you didn't find some purpose in your life, you'd end up in prison or dead. Tell me about the turning point, Don, because a lot of people, that's extreme, but a lot of people have that in their corporate life, their family life, their relationships. What was the actual turning point for you that that day you made a decision to make a change? Well, I was uh, junior high, high school. The, the people I associated with, which just happened to be all the kids in my neighborhoods, they, they were bad kids. You know, in hindsight, they were bad kids. To me back then, they were just normal everyday kids. But they were, we all were involved in crime and drinking and drugs. And we did it for fun and excitement because we thought that was fun and excitement. One of the turning points was that two of the guys in the, who hung out in the gang that we hung out with, their mother was killed in a phone booth by a rival gang. And they, the mother was stabbed to death in a phone booth. Another one, uh, my friend stole his father's air conditioners to go buy heroin. And then I was thinking, this is not where I want to go. I don't want to be around these people anymore. And I also had a sense of patriotism, thanks to my father, who was a World War II Navy veteran, and I decided I was going to go join the Navy. And to me, I feel very, very fortunate that I found that path because the Navy saved my life. The Navy not so much, but the SEAL teams did because then you were with a bunch of like-minded people, people who had all this energy and who liked excitement and liked pushing the boundaries, but they did it for a good cause. And once I found SEAL team, everything in my life changed. And um. And I'm so grateful that I have found the SEAL teams as a career. It's just curious to use the word boundaries. And although you've written a lot of books, you've said recently that the book you're probably the most proud of or the one that, that your favorite book is Reaching Beyond Boundaries. And there's a lot of discussion at the front of the book about mental preparation and particularly a climber that you admired, a guy called Reinhold Mester. And it's, you said during the book he had a process which was a major key to his success of how he would break down every stage of a journey, even in preparation. Is that something you've applied to your own world today, Don? Because you're doing extreme events. You're doing a lot of long-distance events. You seem to enjoy or embrace the things that take a long time and take you to that place. Boundaries and preparation, breaking things down. How have you adopted that process? Well, Reinhold Mesner is the athlete I look up to more than any other athlete on this planet. And um, I've competed over a thousand times and over a thousand events. And I made that as a goal that I compete. I competed in all those events before the 90s began. So, and I'm still competing. So I set that goal too low. But if I showed Reinhold Mesner that long list of what I felt were athletic accomplishments, he would basically laugh at me and he'd say, well, that's great. You like doing these Ironmans, these double Ironmans, marathons, whatever. Here's what I do. I find a mountain that's never been climbed before. 
I go up the North Face, I go solo and without oxygen, and I tell my friends and family, I should be back in a couple of months. To me, he's the most incredible athlete on the planet. He's recognized now as the greatest player of all time, and he's now recognized as probably the greatest mountaineer the world will ever know. And when he breaks down the process of climbing, he does visualization. He, he can't talk to people who've done these climbs or anything like that because he's usually the first to do a lot of these. So he breaks it down and he visualizes the packing, the steps, the hypothermia that he might receive, the pain, the fatigue in his legs, the headaches, the altitude sickness, the, the days and weeks out on a mountain being alone. And he breaks it all down and he trains and he trains really hard, probably harder than any other mountaineer that we know of. And, and when he does uh, these climbs, it's not the first time he's doing it almost because he's visualized every step of it. When I hear about people like Reinhold Mesner and some other great athletes who do that, I started doing that myself. And I did that, for instance, for SEAL training. I, I wanted to be a SEAL. I trained hard four years to be a SEAL, and I did vi use visualization to help me out with that. And every day at the end of the day or the, the end of the night, I'd get back to the barracks and think, boy, that was a tough day. But I thought it would be harder because in my visualization, I made everything harder than it had to be. And I did that with climbing mountains. And I did it with the 500, the 600-mile adventure races and the double Ironman and the single Ironmans even. Um, the visualization, I always had a capacity to make the event harder and uh, more challenging than it actually actually was. And that helped me out a lot because once I actually started the event and finished it, then I would think, oh my God, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Don, do you visualize things not going well? Another, and the reason I ask the question is another SEAL who read a book, a, best, a New York Times bestselling book, uh, David Goggins in Can't Hurt Me was the name of the book, super successful. He talked about the fact that he would visualize things not going well and then visualize himself finding a solution and pushing his way through it. Is that part of your process as well? No, it's not. I, uh, I really, I, I can visualize things being extremely difficult and harsh, but not to the point of failing and not being able to do it. And I'm not sure if that's how David means it. I, I know he talks about he's gone through buds three times. The first two didn't work out for him. The third time did. So I think maybe that's why he did that. And he's been very, very successful as a SEAL and afterwards. But I, I don't – I like to look at the things that could go wrong, but I don't look at it to the degree of them not working out, mm. if that's what you ask me. That's what you might have asked me. But um, I'm not sure how David thinks that way, but I don't think – I never look at things as failing, as a possibility of failing. And the book talks a lot about mindset, and the word you used was combat mindset. And you said in the teams you had that combat mindset, which would help you see through the most difficult of challenges. Just describe that for us. What is a combat mindset? The combat mindset is – Whatever you're doing, you know you're going to succeed. Uh, things could go wrong, but you've got contingency plans. You're not going to get hurt, but if you do get hurt, you're going to get medical care. If you do get hurt, it's not going to stop you. And just that you have that can-do attitude that nothing possibly 
can get in your way of preventing yourself from achieving that mission or that objective or that macro goal. Combat mindset is don't find reasons why you can't do something. Find every reason in the world why you can accomplish whatever you have to accomplish. That's the combat mindset. When, when I talk to civilians around the country, around the U.S. basically, um, I don't use the word combat mindset because it turns a lot of people off. But, and when I talk to them, I use a powerful mindset. But I think it's the same thing, uh, just combat mindset pertaining to combat, powerful mindset pertaining to almost anything else, including combat. When you're out doing these extreme events, Don, you're out there for a long time and you've got to battle with your own thoughts for long periods of time. And something you said was that your first piece of advice when people are out there facing obstacles is just don't quit. And I can imagine a lot of people going, yep, I I get that, Don, but you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand my situation. And they're always looking for ways to justify quitting and all the ways to reframe it so it's okay to quit. Take us through your your mindset, take us through your default language when everything inside you is saying quit, but then you don't. Well, I don't have that inner dialogue going to tell me to quit. I I have never wanted to quit something I've started. Um, Being a quitter in the seals is the worst thing you could be called as a quitter. Um, You know, you, you might start a seal class with hundreds of people in your class. You might finish with 20 or so people. Uh, what I like to use as a an analogy, maybe, or a little uh, example would be, if you're doing log PT and you have that log on your chest and you're doing sit-ups and, and your your head is killing you, your back's killing you, your, your abs are killing you, and the instructor's yelling and screaming, you don't know how long this is going to happen. You've got splinters in your hands and you're just sweat pouring down your face. If you have the discipline to keep going, you know it's just temporary, it's temporary pain. At some point, that instructor is going to go blow the whistle, and you're going to get a chance to jump in the ocean and get a break. But if the guy next to you is feeling those same terrible thoughts, feel same feelings, and everything that you're experiencing, but he decides to go quit, so maybe he'll just change course. Maybe he'll go be, become a pilot or a doctor or something else. And he goes and he rings that bell. For the rest of his life, the pain he's going to have is a permanent pain of regret, which is way worse than just that temporary pain you're experiencing when you're doing something challenging. So I always know that whatever it is that's really hard that I'm doing, it's going to be over at some point. And, um, and if it's too difficult for me, my body will do me a favor and I'll pass out. And that's happened before. I'll simply just pass out. And, and that happened to me in the double Ironman. You know, I did the 16, the, the, the water section was fine. The 224-mile bike ride was fine. Then there were two marathons. I got the first marathon done. I had only one marathon to go. And at mile 32, I started seeing the white spots and started dry heaving and started um, spitting up some bile. And then it felt like I was dry heaving a rib bone. And then I passed out. And when I opened up my eyes, the bikers were going by me, the runners. And I realized I was in the middle of a double Ironman. I had to get up and finish, and I did. I finished, got the medal around my neck, and I realized then that all the other times in my life when I thought something was too hard or too painful or too challenging, I was wrong because if it is too hard, 
for me, my body will simply do me the favor and I would pass out and get the needed break I needed. And, um, and that's how I see things now. If you're still conscious, you can keep going. You might have to slow down a bit, but you can keep going. There's no reason to stop. You can come up with a million reasons why to stop, but it's, you have to have the mindset, that combat mindset or that powerful mindset to come up with reasons why not to stop. See, people would hear that, Don, and go, there's a line. There's a line we cross where you push yourself so hard you pass out. It's, it's, a, it's a curious one, isn't it? Because, yes, we've known, and I know your friend Mark Devine would say that any given time when you think you're done, you've still got 20 or 40% left to go, which we hear talked about a lot. Then the other side is that you could medically take yourself to a bad place which you may not be able to come back from. It's a curious one, isn't it, to know where that line is between knowing you have more and actually going into somewhere which could be dangerous, particularly in the sorts of events you're doing. Well, you know, Gary, what would you just explain there is probably the best lesson I ever learned in my life. I, at one time for decades, I, I hate to say, for decades, I would find that line and just absolutely consciously go over that line to the point of hallucinating, bleeding, passing out, or just hurting myself. I weigh 185 right now and I'm fairly lean. I pushed myself so hard in the past, it went down below 140 because my body would eat from itself. And a couple times I ended up in the hospital and one time my kid, my kidneys and liver shut down and I came very close to dying by pushing myself too hard. And I pushed my teammates really, really hard. And I pushed SEALs or people who wanted to be SEALs really, really hard. Because for one point, I always believed unless you go over that line, you're leaving something on the table. And you can't do that. Now, now I don't believe that anymore. And I would never, ever, ever try to convince somebody to go over the line. I believe now that there is a line, like you just said. There is a line. But the hard part is identifying where that line is. If you're a banker, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever you do, a SEAL, an athlete, a piano player, whatever you do, you, you identify where that line is. And if you go up and touch it and then back down, you won't leave anything on the table. But you know if you go over that line, you might start having perhaps marital problems, probably fam maybe family issues, maybe given too much at one part of your life and, and not others, not, not enough in other parts of your life. So now I think, don't go over the line. I, I, I used to go over that line every month. And if I didn't, I didn't think I was giving it my all. Now I think it's smarter, go up and touch the line and back off. That way you don't get hurt. You don't get sick. You don't have, you know, relationships or whatever else can break down. There's a really nice story of an athlete that I must say over the years, I've admired from a distance. There was an Ironman six-time champion called Mark Allen. And there was a quote you used in the book. You said, a man must not withdraw from the sport without having given at least once in a lifetime all he had. And I just, I just like the way you said that, is seeing the line and going up and touching and coming back again. I just wonder how many of us live our lives without ever having made the true effort to touch the line in whatever part of our life we talk about, not just in sport, not just in business, but in anything where I think we could, we could all do an audit, Don, and go, where have been, where's that time or those times in life where I've really touched the line and 
do I want to finish my time here without having had a look, a good look at that line and touched it? Do you, do you hear those sorts of stories a lot, Don? You're out there on the speaking circuit as a successful author. You're being interviewed a lot. Do you find that something people carry with them that they've never really ever seen the line or touched it? Oh, yes. I, I do all the time. And I, I'm glad you brought up Mark Allen. He's, he's uh, one of my uh, sports heroes. Actually, I just heard from him last week, just a, a quick message. And um, I think the world of Mark Allen, I, I really, really love the way he pushed himself so hard. And if you saw his his early uh, triathlon uh, resumes and bios, it'd be first place, first place, first place, first place, did not finish. His first place, there weren't any seconds, thirds, or fourths because he gave everything he had to win. And sometimes he gave too much and hurt himself or, or, or got fatigued and couldn't go on. But um, when I got out of the SEAL teams, one of the biggest things that shocked me more than anything was, you know, being around these guys for 20 plus years, you see that everybody puts out and they put out a lot and they work, they, they do whatever it takes to get the job done. But when I got out, I realized in, in the civilian community, a lot of people, they, they weren't like that at all. And as a matter of fact, when I speak of goal setting, I realized that a lot of people set the goals really low and they would reach those low set goals and they'd go home and they'd be happy with themselves. And, I, and it was shocking to me how little people did and felt good about doing so little. And and I believe when they do that, there's a big, big, big vacuum that's not going to be fulfilled, and they never, ever will reach their full potential in whatever they do, mother, father, brother, sister, piano player, whatever it is. If they just touched the tip of achieving those low-set goals and settled with that, I think a lot of people go to the grave without ever coming close to reaching their full potential. You said recently in a tweet you said when you were younger, you asked yourself, how am I going to become good at anything if when I start to feel a little uncomfortable, I quit? And it's something we've heard a lot on our show is this place we are in life right now where as soon as we get uncomfortable, we want to be comfortable. And in fact, it's probably something we're generationally passing on to make it comfortable for people. That area of discomfort is something that you really have embraced through your entire career. Is that transferable in your mind, Don? Is that something that you could take people to? Yes, I, I do believe I, I, I have, and I, and I will continue to keep trying to do that for other people. Uh, boy, I'm, I'm pro-America, I'm pro-American, I'm all-American and everything. But in saying that, I believe we're a lazy group of people generally. I mean, a lot of and and I say that because in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, people are different. They're outdoors and they're working hard. And they, and in America, I, I I see a lot of people who who like being on a couch watching TV and watching sports and just not getting out and pushing themselves very hard. I think being comfortable all the time is an absolutely terrible, terrible thing. Because if you're uncomfortable for one hour, just say you're just doing a one-hour workout, that's going to make the other 23 hours all the more comfortable. And um, I, I, th I think you need to have that contrast, even if it's just one hour a day. 
that'll make the non-stressful, non-punishing times, the rest of the hours of the day, all the more pleasant. Midway, there was a, a certain deployment that you were set on and you were pulled into higher headquarters to be the battalion's plans officer. And your chief responsibility was to write and review the plans for every convoy movement in the battalion. And then after that, you were responsible for doing the after action reviews. What I'm curious about today, Don, is when you do a book, do a speech, finish an endurance event, you finish a climb, What's an after-action review look like for you personally? With all you learned in the military, do you do an after-action review for yourself? Yes, absolutely. Uh, AAR, after-action review, after-action report. Every time you finish a mission or anything, you come back and you, uh, you, you, you replay everything that went on, good and bad, because it's the bad, the, the things you could have done better at, the things where you failed at actually or could have improved and you study that and you put it back on the table and think, how could we have done that better? And the SEALs, I don't know anybody who does it better than the SEALs. They do these AARs, they come back and they debrief and they go back and they train and train and train and they get better each and every day. Unfortunately, what we have, we have a saying that our standard operating procedures, our SOPs, our standard operating procedures are written in blood, meaning if somebody is tragically killed or wounded or we go back and figure out how can we ever prevent that from happening again. Sometimes you just can't, but at least you study the details of the mission or the operation to such fine detail that you can hopefully figure out a way so that won't happen again. So that's an SOP written in blood because perhaps somebody was killed or hurt uh, before that SOP was put into place. It must be... It must be amazing to be in a platoon or amongst a group of fellow operators who you trust when it's all on the line. And it must be a, a great feeling to know you can truly trust the people around you within the team. And I suspect it's something you'll want around us, but I question whether in a work environment and social environment, we really can trust those around us. What, what, when you look back now, Don, what creates that depth of trust amongst people that you are standing near? Well, that, that feeling you get that you just described, I've only felt it in the SEAL teams. I've never really felt it elsewhere. Uh, but because you all have a bond, you've all gone through the same arduous training. You've gone all, all, the same training and training missions and operations. You've all sacrificed the same amount. You all pretty much have traveled 300 days a year throughout your career there at the team. And everybody has bonded by having gone through the same sacrifices and the same training. And I'm not saying it's all gloom and doom. A lot of it's a lot of fun times. But you still are bonded by the long days, weeks, and months away from home and being in war zones. That bond... You, you get to know people, you'd know them better than your family. If, you, if you're with your teammates 300 days a year, you're with your family the rest of the time, you're, you, you know your teammates really, really well. And um, you, you trust them. And if, if somebody doesn't trust a teammate, that teammate doesn't stay on the team. And it's that simple. You're, you're pretty much every day, your life is dependent on your teammates in training or in real-world operations. 
It's just they're behind you with weapons, targets popping up. They're shooting right behind you. You you know they're going to take the shot. You know they're not going to be reckless. They're not going to cover your back while they take the shot. And uh, you just know that your teammate has your back, and you also have to know that if they get in trouble, you have their back. And that that's the that's basically the, the, the core of the SEAL teams. You trust your teammates, and you do anything for your teammate. Have you seen it replicated elsewhere, Don, outside the military? In your travels, you get to meet a lot of people, you get to hear a lot of stories. Do you think that's been replicated somewhere that you could say, here's an example, here's a company, here's a social group, here's a sporting team? Have you seen that same trust brought to life somewhere else? You know, I've worked with the Vancouver Canucks for a while, the hockey team, NHL team up in Vancouver. And I saw a lot of that in them. And when I've worked with some other pro teams, I also saw something similar. And when I would discuss that with them, they'd say, very humbly, they'd say, hey, we're just entertainment. We're for TV viewers. You know, we know this is just sports and fun. But that is where I would see it. That's the only place I saw a little bit of it at the surface level. And I, I don't know what would happen if they got a world situation where lives were on the line. But um, I, I do see it in professional sports. And, um, and also, I've, I've worked with the U.S. government, gone overseas to a lot of war zones with the U.S. government, and would go there in small groups. And on occasion, I would see it with a small group, but nothing compares to what I saw in the military, the SEAL teams. You certainly, your resume looks like the resume of a man who has embraced pain. And you said there are two types of pain. Can you describe those two types of pain for us, Don? Yeah, we we have these tough guy t-shirts. Pain is good. Extreme pain is extremely good. But there are the two different types of pain. And, And the one is the temporary pain, just temporary pain. And as I described just a little bit ago, like if I use the log PT, the log physical training, and they're doing log sit-ups and overhead presses and curls and running down the beach with these logs that look like telephone poles. If somebody quits log PT because it's too hard, for the rest of their lives, they're going to have that permanent pain and regret. And that's the pain that lasts a lifetime. If, if somebody just keeps going and keeps going and they know at some point they're going to get a break, they know they only have temporary pain they're dealing with. And those were the two types of pain I'm really talking about. Temporary pain which is going to end at a matter of time. Or in my case, I just think if it keeps going, I'll pass out if it's too much. But then the permanent pain, and I have some of those. I have some I wish I didn't have. But the permanent pain, regret, does last a lifetime. That's so far, so, so much worse. You've said that when you're feeling that pain, you change your focus of pain. Give us an example of that, Don. Okay, so I, I... what, what I do, what I do, and I have a, a lot of injuries and things now, but when I start feeling a lot of pain on some activity, then I start thinking of those who've been POWs and tortured. I, I think about military people who are, who've been caught and captured and tortured. And I think of um, mainly people who've, who've suffered so much more than I have or that I'm suffering. If I'm in just some endurance race that's painful, I chose to do that. And I think, hey, the, you know, tomorrow or next week or in 10 days from now, I'll be in a hotel somewhere recovering. What happens to these, these other poor people, people in war zone or kids in war zones who lost limbs or, and who, 
who live you know, on a cardboard box, that type of pain, I've never experienced anything like that. A lot of times the pain I do experience, I do it because I choose to. And um, so I start thinking of the people who are really, really suffering and the people who have suffered so much more than I'm going to suffer in just some simple, you know, athletic event. And that's how I, I put it in perspective. I heard you mention your favorite leader was General Patton. What, after all the leaders you've served with and around, why, why General Patton? What was it you admired so much about that man? General Patton had the ability to get up in front of the military, the troops, the regiment, the divisions, and he had the ability to speak right from his heart saying, there is no quitting, we are going to win, and he got very, very graphic, but he won the hearts of everybody in the military, and they would do anything they, they could just not to let General Patton down. And I have worked with some leaders like that. One of my favorites was a commander. And he, he was, in my view, very, very similar to General Patton. As a matter of fact, he was so hardcore, and he spoke like General Patton did. People carried his picture around with him because this, this uh, commander motivated the guys so much. He was very, very hardcore with his no black or white. It is, we are going to charge, we're going to take charge, we're going to beat the enemy, period. And um, that attitude, if you saw that on TV now, or if you saw somebody speak like that now, they'd be considered a radical. Uh, but that is what it took to win the battles, you know, back in the day with General Patton, World War II. And, and, and I think we needed leaders back then to, to, to prevail like we did. And um, you don't really hear that anymore. It's rare that you'll hear anybody talk like that because generation after generation after generation, people are becoming softer and they don't speak like that. Uh, and I say softer, they, they portray themselves to be not as harsh. They can still be as harsh. It's not publicly displayed this harsh, uh, you know, tough, tough attitude that General Patton once had. But I love that attitude. I think we all have to have that in us. If we display it or not, it has to be in us. If we're going to go out against an enemy that's very, very powerful, the, you know, the political correctness and the niceties have to go aside. And that's what General Patton was very good at pushing him aside. He was very good at doing that. I suspect that although that, that never quit attitude was something you admired, I'm also wondering whether having complete clarity about mission is an important ingredient in that as well. Don. And the reason I'll put a few threads together here that I'd like to hear your perspective on is I remember talking with Evan Hafer and Matt Best, who are former military guys who have started a very, very successful coffee brand in the States called Black Rifle Coffee Company. And they are growing at an astronomical rate. And all they talked about was the mission, which is creating premium coffee for people who love America. And they are unashamedly all about the mission. When I, and I found that interesting that they've taken a military approach into the retail business environment and it's working in terms of all the metrics they've got. And the thing they said was it was mission that they promote outwardly as well as inwardly. And the reason I bring this up with you, we go back to General Patton and other 
commanders you've worked with is uh, it, it just seemed to me that a lot of organizations today have these missions, but nobody knows them. It's, in a, it's written in a business, but nobody knows them. How important is mission getting people on side, getting people to understand it and execute? How important do you see that when you look back at the, the greats of the past and the modern day leaders? Is that something that you personally adopt? Do you live by a mission? Is that something you took from the teams? Uh, and a simple answer, absolutely yes. Black Rifle, uh, the coffee, the company, I met those guys and when they first got going and I was so impressed. And what they did and what other people have done too, they're one great example, but what other people have done is taken the great lessons, the great philosophies, the great ethos that we, we get in the military and applying it to civilian business. And because the mission and the philosophy and the ethos are so important, um, and, and I think you see it more with people coming from the military and establishing a civilian company, more so than people who haven't been in the military. Uh, yes, I do apply the same thing. I always picture that being back in the teams, like how, what, how would the chain of command react to this plan? Does this make sense? Is this, does this make sense? Would this work for the team? Would, would this be something everybody would fight for? Is this something that everybody would support? And yeah, I think, you know, inwardly, I, I, I do think like that all the time. Uh, outwardly, I do believe that those who take lessons learned from the military and apply it to a civilian company uh, have a greater chance of being successful. And I say that knowing a lot of people don't care for the military, but there are a lot of things, even people who don't care for the military, there are a lot of great things in the military that can help any civilian organization that I think often lacks in civilian organizations. You you served and are a retired member of SEAL Team 6, who probably are one of the highest profiled SEAL teams in civilian minds. Don, tell me the feeling you had when you heard that Osama bin Laden had been shot. Well, I, I retired before... Uh, before Osama bin Laden became a big name. We were looking for him in the teams. We had government programs looking for him back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and I do know for a fact that there are a lot of teams that could have been very successful in taking out bin Laden. Other SEAL teams, it didn't have to be SEAL Team 6. It could have been other SEAL teams. It could have been Army teams. It could have been the Marines. To find out SEAL Team 6 was chosen, a, counter a maritime counterterrorism team got chosen to go into a landlocked place like Abbottabad, Pakistan, to go get the spiritual leader, the Islamic spiritual leader, number one terrorist in the world, and to be that successful to go in into Af Af across the border of Afghan, Pakistan, in the Pakistani airspace, come in there in helos, breach the doors, go up the stairs with all this noise, thinking, they're all thinking that it's a one-way mission because there is no way they could land without attracting all the neighbors and all the resistance, you know, that Osama bin Laden most likely had. There's no way they can get in the compound without most likely being shot down by the snipers for his security. But then they breached the wall, causing more noise. The helicopter crash was noise. The shooting downstairs was a lot of noise. 
They rush up the stairs and Bin Laden's there. And number one man jumps on the women. And he's sure he's going to get the women to, to blow a suicide vest and blow them all up. And then Rob, the person who killed Osama, he looked, he looked, and he saw Osama bin Laden holding one of his wives with an AK next to him. And he shot him three times. The other guys came running up the stairs, and they said, what happened up here? And Rob said, I think I just got him. They packed him up in a body bag, got all the thumb drives, hard drives, lots of intel, rushed out to the helicopters, and they're all out. All that happened in less than an hour. And, that, and, and they all wrote letters to their daughters and wives and girlfriends saying, if you get this letter, it's because I died on a mission. And I died doing what I love doing. And I did this for the 3,000 Americans, 3,000 people who were killed on 9-11. And so they were certain they were going on a one-way mission. And boy, that feeling there, you don't get that anywhere else. You, you don't, where else do you find people who will give everything like those guys did? Go across border back in Afghanistan and the helicopter jokingly, the pilot jokingly said, hey, for the first time in you guys' lives, you'd be happy to hear, welcome to Afghanistan. And they put Osama bin Laden's body bag down and they looked up and President Obama was on the big screen saying, the U.S. just took out world's number one terrorist. And I was so, so proud. I mean, I had tears in my eyes when I heard about it. Um, I was so proud of those guys. It was flawless, flawless. I talked to guys on the team afterwards. They said, you know, Don, you are a training officer. And it was like shooting paper targets. You never made training this easy for us. Training was never that easy. And, and we had a saying in, in SEAL in the BUDS compound, the basic underwater demolition SEAL training compound. It said on a frogman statue, the sign said, the more sweat and tears you put into training, the less bloodshed in wartime. So the training I put on, put these guys through, all the training other trainers have put them through, it was hard. It was very, very hard. These guys said, pretty simple. It was like shooting paper targets, no resistance at all. And that was going after the number one terrorist in the world. So they were trained, and they had done hundreds and hundreds of missions before this. It was just second nature to them, and it just happened to be against the number one terrorist in the world. But that was their mindset. That mindset was, yeah, we're going to do it, and, you know, um, if we get shot out of the sky, we don't finish. At least we're doing it for a very noble cause. We're doing it for those families of the 3,000 people who were killed. If you don't mind adding something to that. Yeah. Uh, we were getting a lot of great publicity. And I say we. I mean, the SEAL teams are getting a lot of great publicity. It was the Osama bin Laden raid, Captain Phillips, you know, the, the ship uh, was towing the lifeboat with the Somali pirates on it. There were some aid workers in Australia that were rescued. It was back to back to back to back great news. And um, as you know, there was one, and I say this because I just recently spoke to a family whose son was on this helicopter, but the Army was in a firefight, and SEAL Team was there, uh, one of the assault teams from SEAL Team 6. We had four assault teams, and SEAL Team said, let us go help. We want to go help our brothers in arms. Those are the Army. They, they need help. We'll jump in that helicopter. And all these SEALs jumped in a helicopter. They went flying out to where the battle was. And one Taliban shooter shot him out of the sky. Everybody's dead. The whole team was killed. Now, that, that morning we had four SEAL teams. Now we have three. It was the worst day in SEAL team history. 
And even after all these great successes, these great, great successes SEAL Team was having, SEAL Team 6 was having, now the worst day in SEAL Team history. And I went back afterwards to see the guys at the command. And they're having a little reunion for us older guys. And I went back there. And I didn't know how they were going to be because we were we were gone 300 days a year. We thought we had it rough. We thought, you know, we were the, the, the important people because we're going all over the world doing all this stuff. But it was so much different. Our divorce rate was high. Our medical problems the guys were having was high. There were funerals you'd go to one or two every now and then, you know, guys being killed. But now the difference is these guys have been at war nonstop, some of them for their entire adult lives, now for over 20 years. The divorce rate still skyrocketed. The difference is for the last 20 years, they've been at war. We got it in small bits and pieces. They had it so much harder than we had it. And now I didn't know what those guys were going to be like. And when I went back to the command that day, first thing we did, we toasted all the names on the walls of all the SEALs who've been killed. And I was, I was in shock at how many guys were killed. You know, you hear about it, you know, every now and then someone's killed everyone. But then a whole assault team was killed. And then went around talking to every guy, every guy who was there, all the young SEALs, SEAL Team 6 guys. And every one of them, man for man, would say, I can't wait to get back to finish the mission. And that's probably the truest sense of combat mindset that I know. No matter how hard their lives have been for 10 plus years, nonstop at war, something our country's never experienced, they couldn't wait to get back to finish the mission. And, and I just wanted to, to include that with the Osama bin Laden raid because, yeah, success after success after success, um, and then, boom, we lost a whole assault team. One out of four assault teams gone in a second, one shot, and they shot out of the sky. And I've been speaking with the families of these poor parents who lost their sons that day. And it was, it's, those are the hardest talks I've ever done. That must almost explain, in a way, Don, why it's so hard for these guys when they leave the teams to get back into the civilian world, when they're used to that for 10 years, and then suddenly they're going home and they're surrounded by not that, which I think is the reason Black Rifle Coffee Company have been so successful is because they've been able to replicate that world in a business fraternity based on mission and disciplines and execution, SOPs. But it must be really hard when you frame it the way you framed it for guys to come back out of the teams, out of the military, into a world that we currently live in. That adjustment is just, it just sounds very, very challenging. I was once told that as a civilian joining the military, it's a big challenge because of the change of your life. It's so dramatic. But it's much more dramatic when you leave the military to become a civilian because there's not the structure, there's not the mission, there's not the objective set in front of you. And I hate to say this, I really don't like saying this, but I woke up this morning to find another SEAL buddy of mine died. And, um, and I'm still trying to find out how he died. But I keep track of all the people I served with, all the SEALs, and so many on that list are from suicide now. And, and it is hard because some of them, some of them have been fighting for 20 years, 20 years. 
about where nobody can relate to that. Nobody, because nobody's ever gone through that in our country. So, you know, there's been some seals in the news who, you know, with charged with war crimes and things like that. And I get interviewed on that. And my response to that is let the SEAL team chain of command handle their own issues because only the SEAL chain of command, which is very, very good at handling their own issues, they know what these SEALs are going under. They know the turmoil that they're under and they know their operations tempo, though, and they know what they're going through. And, um, and people are breaking and, and, and there, there is a fracture because we've never experienced 20 years of nonstop war in our country before. And that's what the guys are going through now. Everybody they're with, everybody they're surrounded with, all their teammates, their whole chain of command, everybody's at war. And, and, and what does that do? I know a guy who's been on 70 missions where over 70 people were killed. What does that do to your psyche? I mean, no matter how tough you think you might be, that's going to chip away at your soul in some way. And that, that's what's going on right now with so many people. And not just SEALs. I mean, the Rangers, the Army Delta Force, and the Special Forces, and the Rangers, all of these guys who are out on the front lines. Don, you've seen a lot. You've done a lot. Your resume of endurance events in modern times is super impressive, as well as your writing. You're not a spring chicken. You've seen a lot, done a lot. How do you how do you see the aging process? What's your philosophy on the age? Well, I'd like to share something with you. What I've been going through the past couple of weeks, I I have a possible diagnosis of only having a year and a half to live, which has been disproven, thank God. But I, I got hurt up on Everest a couple of years ago, and I got high altitude pulmonary edema. My lungs filled with fluid, and my my brain cavity filled with fluid. It was called hape and haze. I lost my memory and I was drowning in my own fluids. I made it back down to base camp safely. But that was three years ago and I'm still suffering from the effects of some memory loss and some, um, some lung damage. But what's happening now is the lungs are starting to act up and I'm coughing nonstop. And, um, and, and one doctor said, you may have this thing called IPF idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And I was reading, I go, yep, I got all the symptoms, got it, got it, got it, got it. Then I got to the bottom, it said, three to five year life expectancy, uh, no cure. And I was thinking, oh my God, I only have a year and a half to go. And I am 62 and I'm, the first thing that came to my mind is, well, I better prepare for this. The second thing that came to my mind is, um, what I, and I was happy that I had this thought, what I want to do now is just help as many people as I possibly can in whatever way I can. But then I had one of the greatest pulmonologists in our country say, nope, we don't think that's what you have. So I was very, very relieved. But it did bring to just how fragile a body is and what it can take and what it can't take. And people do die. We all know what we're going to die. And what I like to tell people when I do these talks is death is a reality. We're all going to die. But what's worse than that is what we can let die inside of us if we allow that to happen. And why not put it all out there on the table? Give everything you have so you don't leave anything void. Go up and touch the lion and back off because you don't know if you're going to get a diagnosis. Okay, you've got six months to live, a year to go. You don't know. You don't know if a car accident is going to take you out tomorrow. 
you know, fortunately for me, my story is now I don't have that diagnosis to worry about. But last week and the whole month up till last week, I was thinking I've got a year and a half to go. And I was dealing with that. And that could happen, who knows, to me or anybody next week. You don't know. So why not just fill that void? Don't let it go empty and pick these big macro goals and go out after them and, and achieve them. Because some, we're all going to die it someday, but we someday the window's going to close, the door's going to shut, and there's not going to be time to go out and go after all the things you want to accomplish in life. And, and not to sit back and think it's going to happen someday because someday may may not happen for you. Has your philosophy on time changed in the last week, Don, from having the diagnosis to now knowing you don't? How has your psychology, your approach to time changed in that week of before you knew the news to after you got the news? <laughs> well, not to sound sadistic, right? Uh, you know, like I'm a some sadistic type guy, but I always wanted to go with a shark attack or a lion attack or bear, or sh- you know, some sort of attack, an avalanche or like a, or a tidal wave or something big and, and just one big adrenaline rush and right back to the food chain. I didn't want some long, slow death process. I never want that because I've seen people die that way and it's just terrible for them and the families and all that. I just want it to happen fast. And I think most people would want that or die in the sleep. But to tell you the truth, um, I'm, re- I'm very relieved. It's not a year and a half left. But it didn't change anything for me because I know, you know, it's going to come someday. And, um, and and I'm not worried about it. It's just going to happen. It's part of the whole life process. I, I know, as a matter of fact, when I got that diagnosis, I didn't tell my daughter because I didn't want her to worry. But, um, yeah, it didn't change anything. I know, I know it can happen anytime to anybody. It will happen to us all at some point. The book you we talked about earlier in the show and that I have read, which I loved, is uh, called Reaching Beyond Boundaries. You've written a lot of books. You said it's the one that probably resonates the most with you. Was there ever a boundary that you could not reach beyond? Well, well, thank you for saying that about my book. Um, so there, there are some boundaries, some goals I set, what I call macro goals, that I didn't accomplish. Uh, for instance, I, I wanted to be the first person to ride across the United States at 300 miles a day on a road bike and to break the, the transcontinental record. And I did that with a friend of mine, and he decided to quit, so I said I'd do it some other time. So that's a goal that I didn't accomplish, and it's regret I'll have for the rest of my life. Um, I, I, I wish I had stayed married. You know, I've been married and divorced, and um, and I don't like that. That's a that's a goal I didn't meet. I planned on being married one time, and for that to last forever. So I do have regrets that things didn't work out as I planned. And knowing that now, I do my very, very, very best not to have any more regrets that'll last a lifetime because those are regrets I'll have for the rest of my life and I don't want that any more mm-hmm. of those. People, and, and not only, which I, th- I thought was great because I like these sorts of books, but not only have you done books like Reaching Beyond Boundaries, but you've also written a load of, uh, what you call them, fictional books, Don, in terms of novels. So you've written, you've got a wide-ranging variety of books that you've done. Your resume is incredible with all the endurance events that you have done. 
and you've got a great backstory. For people who want to dive into more about Don Mann, find those books, contact you, where is the best hub for people to find more about you? Well, thanks again for those words, Gary. Um, probably my website, um, which is usfrogman.com, and that's uh, F-U-S-F-R-O-G, and then M-A-N-N, like my last name, .com. And there's a website there, and the 20 books I've done are up there. But I think uh, the, the one book, which I don't like the name of it because it really has nothing to do with Inside SEAL Team 6, I was asked to do a book on my autobiography, uh, military and sports, and I told the public, and this was right after bin Laden was killed, and I was a training officer at SEAL Team 6. I said, no, everything you want me to talk about at SEAL Team 6, the things I can't talk about, I won't. Some things you just leave behind the gates and you don't bring them, you don't share them with anybody. And to tell you the truth, what I've done as a, an athlete, a lot of other people have done. And they said, nope, nope, a lot, a lot of people are talking. You should let us do your story. And anyways, two publishers offered a lot of money. Finally, the third publisher said, we'll do an, an unclassified version of your story, if that's okay with you. And you don't have to include anything that's not classified. How does that sound? I said, well, it might be boring for you, but that is the one book of 20 that's made it to New York Times bestseller. And that is my autobiography, but it's called Inside SEAL Team 6. And um, so, and then the reason Beyond Boundaries, the reason I like doing that book so much is because basically the talks I give around the country motive, you know, and hopes to motivate the audiences. The talk's only an hour long, but everything that's in that talk and a lot more of the surrounding stories are in the book, Reaching Beyond Boundaries. And then that even spread out to three other books, smaller books, one called Overcoming Obstacles, one Facing Your Fears, and one Choosing Your Battles. So now I've got the four motivational books um, and the autobiography. So I think it's those five that probably um, the ones I'd recommend. You know, unless you like fiction, and then there's eight fictional books. Then there's the how-to books, how to become a SEAL, how to survive. I have a survival book. How to shoot, you know, it's called The Modern Day Gunslinger, How to Shoot Combat Pistol. And, and I wrote the first book of adventure racing. Uh, the, when the first the sport first started, I wrote the first book on adventure racing. And, that, and then I just recently finished one on pirates. So it's been enjoyable. I, I like it. You know, my uh, high school English teacher would roll over in her grave if she ever thought I'd even read any books. <laughs> <laughs> that I would write, write books. But it, it is enjoyable. And, and I do it with really good co-authors. And that's what helps because I do a lot of mine by tape. And I just speak, and my co-author will type up a lot of it. And that, that way it works because they're better at that, and I'll get the ideas, and I'll get the format and the chapters. And, and so we have really good relationships. I have three co-authors, and I do, I do these books with three different co-authors. I'm very mindful of time, Don. I've got one final thing to ask you, and it's just something I'm curious about, is we know that when we talk to anybody who speaks of great leaders of today or the past, humility seems to be a trait that is a commonality amongst great leaders and people who sustain excellence. And hearing you talk about what you've done, how you do it, there is absolutely a sense of humility. And then on the flip side, there seems to be a necessity to have a certain amount of ego to talk about 
what one has done, with who, achievements. And there seemed to be a true dichotomy between the humility and then ego in terms of where those two things sit. And I find you sitting right in the middle there where I find it really interesting. And that dichotomy, I think, is a challenge for a lot of people like yourself. How, how do you see that? Where's that sweet spot? How do you see ego? How do you use ego? Where do you see ego meeting humility? You know, we have a saying that you can fool the fans, you can't fool the players. And I'm not saying I'm trying to fool anybody, but I like to think of that often because you know, as a guy who was in the SEALs, SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 6, that sounds very impressive to some people. But the fact is, I was in the easy years. You know, I was in from 77 to 98. As far as our history is concerned, those were very, very easy years. So the, the young SEALs who came in after 9-11, who've been at war their entire lives, you hear somebody like me talking about being at 1, 2, and 6 from 77 to 98. That means nothing to them. And as far as climbing these mountains and doing these adventure races, there's a lot of people I've uh, trained with and competed with who've done so much more than me. So I don't think really I have anything to boast about as far as sports or military at all. I really just believe that I've learned some lessons through the things I've done in life. And the best I can do with those lessons is to share them with other people because I think it can motivate other people. But as far as a military person, you know, I, I feel I had a successful career, but it was very easy compared to people nowadays. And as an athlete, you know, I, I did my share of oh, but there's so many people who've done so much more. So I am kind of in the middle there. I do have a website and it talks about all this stuff and it's to help sell books and get speaking engagements. But it's not really boasting in any way because I always start every talk by saying I have nothing to boast about. I really don't. I'm not just trying to be humble. I really don't. But I do have some lessons I like to share. And the website and all these things, the interviews and things like that, they, they allow me to get these lessons out to audiences. Well, I can say on behalf of our audience, Don, thank you for sharing your lessons. I think you are leading a super inspiring life. It may go on for many decades to come. And I, I could honestly talk to you for hours. And I hope someday I get to meet you face to face and we can have a coffee and talk some more because I think, you know, the lessons you've got where you are in your journey, where I think you are likely to go really is something terribly inspiring. So thank you so much for your time, mate. Thank you, Gary. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. The Mojo Radio Show. Okay, we've had enough Navy SEALs on the, on the show now. I think it's time I came clean. And let me preface this by saying this in no way sheds any disrespect on the Navy SEAL guys and the jobs that they do. Completely awesome. Utmost respect from me. However, this is more a reflection on my brain. I'm sure the word Navy SEAL to most people <laughs> sort of sends shudders of fear through their bones, especially if you're on the wrong end of one of their rifles. Every time we talk about Navy SEALs, I picture a guy balancing a beach ball on his nose while clapping his hands. I have no idea why, but it <laughs> strikes me every time. Mm, that's just weird. Um, do you know it's interesting? During this time, and the SEALs, for whatever reason, have really come into the spotlight probably the last, I don't know, maybe decade ago, because prior to that, they were really unknown. And now they're very well known. And there's a lot of leadership experts who are former SEALs. And what's really interesting, when this whole pandemic sort of broke 
and became real in all parts of the world, to me was a real test of leadership. And we're seeing that with governments. We're seeing it with community groups. We're seeing it with sporting leaders. Now, for example, a test of leadership right now, Australian Rugby Union, Australian Rugby League. <laughs> God, don't go there. Honestly, isn't it? Because in those times, you see true leadership and pretty much in a lot of cases, leadership is being exposed. And Warren Buffett had a, had a famous phrase. He said, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. So it's really interesting that the tide's gone out and suddenly all these leaders and their companies are being exposed. But here's what's fascinating. Whenever I do a speech and I ask an audience, who are the great leaders who have their mojo working I, or, or who are the great innovative leaders I guarantee in the first three, it probably won't even get to the first five, will be everybody's hero, Richard Branson. Yet what's fascinating by this is in Australia this week, Virgin Australia, which is 10% owned by the Virgin Group, entered voluntary administration, i.e. bankruptcy protection. Now, Richard Branson, a billionaire, wrote to all his team in an open letter to all employees. Over the five decades I've been involved in business, this is the most challenging time we have ever faced. As Branson notes, his constellation of companies operate in some of the sectors hardest hit by virus containment. Uh, Leisure, travel, aviation, hotels, and cruises. So Branson has written to the UK government for a loan to keep his own Virgin Atlantic airline afloat. And he even said... He'll offer up his famous Necker Island estate in the Caribbean as collateral to save as many jobs as possible, (laughs) right? Here's Here's where it comes down. Here's where it's exposed. It's been said that a good deal of his letter was playing defense against critics who pointed out he hasn't paid income tax in the UK since decamping for the British Virgin Islands, yet now he wants the British taxpayers to bail him out. And then he countered by saying, It's not that it's wrong. He's actually saying, well, you're right. (laughs) He said he'd pay back any government aid as he's already promised to pour 250 million of his own money back into the Virgin Group. So I just find it interesting that it goes back to mission first versus me first. It's mission first is all good when the sun's shining, when it starts to storm and gets rainy and hails and we face real leadership challenges. It's amazing who's being exposed. I, uh... I, I've dug into this a little bit because a mate of mine uh, works for VA and was defending the fact that the Australian government hadn't handed Virgin Australia any funds. Uh, and after doing a bit of digging, I came across the fact that, well, you know, surprise, surprise, Virgin Australia has paid no company tax in Australia for God knows how long. Uh, it's also owned by not only Branson, but a couple of multi-billion dollar Chinese companies. And when we're talking multi-billion, we're talking like 95 billion for one and I think 57 billion for another, plus Singapore Airlines, plus Emirates Airlines, both of which are doing okay, thank you very much. Uh, And not one of them are putting their hands in their pocket either. So why should we, the Australian public, do it either? I I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a big test. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. All right. This This is a very unique Pop quiz, hot shot. Are you ready? Shoot. Okay. When I was a kid, I remember being in Kirribilli when the motorcade went past for the Queen. 
And she waved to me. She was there with Prince Philip. She waved, which is pretty cool, right? Some months later, I went down when George W. Bush went past in his motorcade, which was bigger than the Queen's and, like, just so impressive. So when you see a motorcade of 18 black SUVs, it's pretty impressive and it gives you goosebumps. I've got five presidents, and I want you to tell me which country president has this car as their presidential SUV. The first one, it's a Cadillac nicknamed The Beast. Which, which president has that as a car? A uh, Cadillac called The Beast, I would have to guess, at the United States president. Correct. One for one. Mm-hmm. A, a Hyundai Nexo SUV. Uh, Korea, maybe? Not King Jong. Nice, two for two. South Korean president Moon Jae-in. Nice Mm -hmm. work. Okay. I wouldn't have got these. A Jaguar XJ Sentinel. Uh, That wouldn't be the British PM, would it? An Audi A8. Germany. What's the name in Germany? Nice. German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Yep. (laughs) The Toyota Century Royal. (laughs) They'd have to be Japan. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abib. There, there you, you go. go. Five for five. See, there you go. Good thing I know my cars, really, isn't it? There you go. That's tops. I'm super impressed. All right. So to take us out this week, it's something presidential. It's something. Well, hang on. Hang on. Before you go there, here's my thoughts. Here's my tie-in. You've mentioned the Queen in that. We've talked about being on air in London. If I was going to be a DJ in London, and I had my choice of songs, the first song I would want to play is God Save the Queen, which ties the whole thing together. The Sex Pistols? Uh, is there any other? <laughs> oh, let's do it. Do you, what do you think? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. God, we're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime... To polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.